been a long drive this morning on an incredibly wet March day here in Scotland. I am a few miles past Oban trekking along the coast in this kind of broken hilly country, craggy outcrops above me. It's sort of that typical land that you would imagine um, sheep being. In fact, there are sheep everywhere. It's kind of sheep farming country is what I describe it as, but the sea is just to my right. And I'm here to meet Dr. James Fenton, who is a man, I think he's gonna raise as many questions as he answers for me, but I've read a lot of his papers. He has a lot of very insightful views on uh, carbon and tree planting, and tree coverage across Scotland historically, what the future is gonna look like, uh, which ticks a lot of the boxes of my adventure and exploration into the uplands here and what they're gonna look like in the future. This is the British Uplands Podcast with Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, an exploration of change in one of the UK's most important landscapes. Grant to take down trees, plant to put hedges, plant to take ditches, plants put on sheep, no grounds for sheep, sheep come off. If you hear a simple argument put forward about how the uplands need to be managed, then that a simple argument has to be wrong. Definitely going to cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> well, I think I'm here. Uh, he said the house that looks like it has a church door. Um, and that certainly looks like a church door. So I've arrived. Hello. 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 I'm here to see James. Yes. I'm assuming I got the right, you the right door. Yes. James, nice to meet you. Yeah, no, I'm sorry about that. I'm a, I'm a botanist by training. Um, after leaving school, I did a degree in botany at Durham University. And David Bellamy was oh, one of my... Oh, the famous David Bellamy. He was one of my lecturers and no a key way. influence in my life. Okay. And um, his main interest was peat bogs. So I've always had... In, well, even before that, I always had interest in peat bogs. And a job came up with the British Antarctic Survey studying Antarctic peat. Because most people probably don't know that in Antarctica, there's peat bogs, well, it's under permafrost, but there's peat up to 5,000 years old. Our carbon-rich peatlands, once also covered by ice, are now exposed to a changing climate and the impacts of human intervention. Many want to see more trees planted in the uplands, but why aren't there more already? The climate warms after an ice age and the soils are rich because all the rock flour and the grinding of glaciers have made nice rich soils. The climate warms up quite quickly. Optimum for plants, quick colonisation of plants and trees migrate up and you get woodland. And that's called the mesocratic phase of maximum diversity. So where, how far back are we from present day to when we're talk, you're talking about that? In oh, about 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 years ago. Okay. But in this part of the world, it rains. And it rains, and it rains. Case what, in point today. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and what does rain do? It washes out nutrients. So it's a natural process of, of woodland expansion, woodland decline. And we've come to near the end point of a natural decline of woodland. And we are trying to reverse our natural process by putting woodland back in the landscape. So Dr. Fenton argues that the historic lack of nutrients in our uplands is the main reason for limited tree cover. But humans have had a massive impact on the landscape as well. Our peatlands have been used for fuel, farming and forestry, to name just a few. 
Peat cutting has been the biggest change to peatlands and the massive loss in Scotland in the last few thousand years, which isn't recorded hugely, doesn't get much um, discussion. The other one is draining, digging ditches, which called, they were called moor grips. Mm-hmm. And the, the theory was if you drain peat, um, it makes it better grazing or better for grouse shooting. And you know, all over Britain, the Pennines, um, and in even quite remote parts of Scotland, you could get a grant to take a, a caterpillar tractor up and dig ditches. And you see them even in quite remote areas. It never worked, because if you know about This is part of agricultural, it, um, part of the agricultural schemes back in the, what, the 1950s, 70s. yeah. It was, it was from the 50s. I think so. I can't so, so exactly. We, 50s, 60s, yeah. yeah you so could be grant-aided to dig ditches in peat bog. In the old days, people got grants to drive diggers to dig ditches, and their sons or grandsons would now get money to <laughs> fill them in again. Yeah. Such, I mean, I think a lot of grant schemes in the countryside are just putting back the damage from previous ones. You used to get grants for cutting down hedges, now you get grants for putting them back. And I think on a fundamental point, virtually all land use change or landscape change in Britain is funded by grant aid. Landowners and owners and managers go the way the grant goes. You grant to plant trees, grant to take down trees, plant to put hedges, grant to dig ditches, and that's generally the plants put on sheep, no grants for sheep, sheep come off. That generally is the main... Um, determinant of the landscape pattern in Britain today. And the current direction from government is for greater tree coverage, both through tree planting and natural regeneration or rewilding. This often involves fencing out wild deer or vastly reducing the numbers through culling. But you said the word natural regeneration. There's nothing natural about reducing, making um, a whole trophic level, making all the grazing level functionally That's extinct. That's a great point, yeah. If you're making that, deer, that is the phrase that gets used, I it suppose, does. as well. Yeah. But it's not natural. You can say it's forced regeneration. There's nothing natural about low grazing levels. And I think it, this is where an understanding of ecology comes in. There is debate to be had. What determines the grazing level in a natural ecosystem? Is it predation or is it um, food availability? Now, I would argue that and other, other people, you know, ecologists who've studied deer, say that it's the food availability determines the population of animals. Obviously, it, there's got to be enough food, and animals will eat. If there's a lot of grazing available, animals will f- numbers will increase to utilize that grazing. Um, and therefore, the grazing level is determined ultimately about the food availability. Now, of course, in Scotland, highly seasonal climate, there's a lot of grazing available in the summer, less in the winter. So it's winter availability of food that determines the, the grazing level. And all research shows that the pop, you know, 13, 10, 13, 20 deer per square kilometre, you know, can be, be supported naturally. You might get high mortality some years. And, but to get trees, you need three or four deer per kilometre or less. So that order of magnitude discrepancy between the carrying capacity and that for woodland... Um, so you need to think again. Why are you going for woodland? Surely, if, if the carrying capacity is such that woodland cannot survive, why do you expect woodland to survive? Of course, tree planting schemes, which are restoring some of our ancient woodlands around the UK, are crucially important for the health and biodiversity of our natural spaces. The Woodland Trust is currently working with landowners around the country to restore more than 34,000 hectares of damaged woodlands, removing invasive, non-native species. But in the uplands, there are some difficult decisions to be made. So everybody talks about wants a balance. We don't want all woodland, we don't want all, we want, a, we don't want all open hill. We want a balance. 
And I would argue that's nothing to do with ecology or science of what the natural world would give us. It's that relates to our psychological needs or liking. So it's more, a psych- it's more like a, a sociological yeah. desire yeah. rather than it is an ecological yes. requirement. And that actually means that we tend to transform the landscape into what we like. And because humans are the same much across the world, we're resulting in a homogenization of landscapes. We make everywhere this, oh, a balance, woodland, open ground. So we make everywhere the same. Now, I don't even know about the European Landscape Convention. It's a convention I'm from the Council of Europe about looking after landscape. And one of the issues there is the homogenization of landscapes, making everywhere look the same, because each landscape is, a different, is distinctive. You know, and in terms of urban variety, you know, the, the building structure in Athens is different to it is in um, London. But with modern sort of supermarkets and shops, they all look the same anywhere in the world. The same applies to landscapes. And, you know, every so let's make Scotland like Norway, more trees. So we, if we cover, make, cover Scotland with trees and make it like Norway, we've lost, we've, we're actually homogenizing the European landscapes and yeah. we've lost that diversity. So we might have more diversity in our landscape, potentially, yes. but in a global context, we've, ha- we've lost. That's it, we've exactly that. that. And most people don't think globally. Because we think, um, for all we know, because we live in a we live in a small geographical area as a rule, and we get to know it well. And things which are rare in our area, we appreciate. Things which are common, we don't. But there's 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 two conflicting narratives, or value systems, if you like. There's a nature conservation value system, conserving natural natural processes and nature. And the biodiversity loss yes. um, conversation. And there's a climate change one, mm-hmm. and they're not always on the same side. Um, an example might be um, climate change. You want to build wind farms and dam rivers and hydroelectric schemes, which might be in conflict with maintaining the naturalness of a landscape. So, you know, which is more society has to decide what's more important: keeping wild parts of well, some parts of the planet wild, so future generations can see nature in the raw and understand how nature works, or is, is that less important than making sure? that there's, we extract every last kilowatt of energy from natural energy flows and cover the landscape with infrastructure. And that's a societal decision. And the different value systems as comparing apples and oranges. That was a scientific view of how our landscape was shaped. But it sustains more than just deer and peat bogs. And so this week we wanted to hear those voices, the people who live and work here. You don't have to work hard to convert people that eat meat to eating game. They tend to try it, enjoy it, like it, buy it. To kick us off, Sarah is going to lighten our discussion a little. And there is no better way to do that than with food. As she joins game chef, writer and broadcaster Tim Maddams, cooking up a feast in his kitchen, nestled on the edge of the very uplands we have been investigating. Uh, so I've got a little roe deer haunch here, and I am literally just going to seam it out. So I'm going to take, for all intents and purposes, I'm going to take this muscle here out, and we're going to slice it up into a couple of steaks. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to grill it while we have a chat, or just fry it while we have a little chat, and we'll make a little asparagus, you know, salady kind of dish with some cheese and a bit of venison. Sounds absolutely all right. delicious. That, so, will that do you? Is that yeah, a good, that, that'll do. Doesn't sound very do. snappy on the menu, does it? <laughs> So why is it important, in your opinion, that um, people eat more game? Um, I think it would be nice to see more people eating the right game. I mean, venison's a good example uh, because obviously, you know, we're, there's a drive. 
UK wide to reduce the the national deer herd if you like there's never been more deer in the UK that's causing problems coming into conflict with forestry it's coming into conflict with road users coming into conflict with um, people in, in all sorts of different ways um, particularly if you want to grow lots of new trees particularly you know in areas where it's difficult to fence them you know then deer are not your friend if you're a young tree you're going to get eaten by a deer um, and understories of woodland suffering quite a lot as well with overpopulation of deer so things like um, nightingale habitat that sort of thing is getting lost because we're over browsing the woodland floor so that sort of understory of stuff that you would normally get in a mature woodland is not there yes um so uh, that's one of the reasons I would like to see people eating more of it because we need to kill more of it um, and reduce that herd. So one of the ways I like to look at it is if if I choose not to eat meat, which I may well do one day, I think yeah. I have a lot of respect for anyone that thinks enough about their diet that they make a decision like that. I'm behind them because I wish yeah. people thought more about what they eat. That's my own yeah. thinking on that. Um, but if you choose not to eat meat, over the course of your lifetime, you stop buying lamb chops, a couple of lambs will eventually not be born. Mm. to produce food for you mm -hmm. right that sort of works in my head deer mm -hmm. these are going to get killed anyway so mm -hmm. to not eat them is kind of madness now that's not me saying vegetarians should eat venison what i'm saying is if we're going to kill these deer they must be eaten yeah you know, that's, there's a no wastage issue. Yeah, yeah yeah can't can't and, and it's a fantastic wild resource it comes from a beautiful place it's had no drugs mm -hmm. you know it's not had antibiotics in its life ever it's been born in the wild it's been reared in the wild and until the moment someone pulls a trigger it's had a completely it's had a freer life than i have yes you know so i think it's a fantastic thing and, and I, I would encourage people if they eat meat to try venison how important would you say the uplands in their current state are for the wild food industry? Oh, um, well, I mean, I, I, think, I think the uplands in their current state are magnificent places. That's what I think. I mean, if you talk about the wilderness in terms of, you know, extracting wild food from a habitat, mm. then what you need is an incredibly diverse place. Uh, and that for me is what upland, up, you know, managed upland habitats look like. You know, if you want to go and see rare birds in the spring that are ground nesting, that's an amazing place to go and see them, you know. Uh, so I think that angle is there. In terms of managing the upland purely for the extraction of wild food, I think they do it quite well, you know. There's a, they're keen to, they, whoever they are, keen to have more trees and that means less deer. Yeah. But aside from that, I mean, that's a, that's a relatively easy change to machinate. We know how to kill deer, we know how to hunt them. And if we're quick and, and clever, we can probably market that uh, quite well to an end user as well. So, mm. I mean, I was sort of a little bit of the feeling that it isn't broken, don't tinker with it too much. You know, I mean, interesting work being done on peatland restoration and all of that stuff. And that, there's always things that can be improved. But do I think they're doing a bad job of producing wild food in the uplands of the United Kingdom? No, I don't. I think they're doing a good job. So the problem actually, if there is a problem, and we are, you know, we're getting this extra uh, venison, for example, flooding the market right now because we want to bring those numbers down. The problem isn't necessarily in the production side of it, it's in the marketing and the sales. Yeah, and I think also, I think the, the third sector can help with that too, you know, and there's an awful lot of people out there who are struggling to feed themselves, mm. be they homeless, lost their business in a pandemic, just struggling through the cost of living crisis, yeah. Whatever it is, whatever the reasons are, frankly, the reasons don't matter. Um, 
if the people out there that need good quality food, high nutrient dense food, then the third sector is helping. So the Country Food Trust are feeding millions of people with wild venison from the UK. And, and they're doing that for nothing on charitable funds that they've raised. You know, we can do more of that. So there doesn't need to be any waste. If we want more trees and we need to kill deer on the uplands to have more trees, and that's not going to displace too many other precious, uh, rare species by foresting an area that's not then an appropriate habitat for them, then, you know, there are lots of ways that we can be clever about making sure that that meat asset gets used, yes. not just in the traditional way, not just in homes, not just in restaurants, but hospitals, um, ration packs, long life food for people in need, third sector, you know, there's lots of ways we can do that. Yeah. And what about the future, I guess, of, of grouse and other birds that, that require the open space? Well, I mean, if you forest the grouse more, you lose the grouse. Yeah. Um, you know, capercaillie, black grouse, you know, we're losing habitat for them left, right and centre. Now the capercaillie is quite happy with the trees, you know, um, there's probably more of a predation issue there. But I think in terms of losing grouse, red grouse entirely, which is an endemic species to the United Kingdom, it doesn't exist in its this exact form anywhere else in the world, it's a very rare bird globally, right? Um, to, to do away with that for the sake of planting more trees on the uplands, you know, who's got the answer? I don't have the answer. Is that yeah. the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? It's almost a matter of, of opinion. Depending on what you're bringing in and what you're losing, it's a very hard balancing act. I think it depends what you want, Yeah. doesn't it? I mean, me, I would like to see uplands with grouse moor on them, and i like to see that habitat thriving because that's a habitat I love and I like it, and I like the products that are coming from it as well. So I love eating grouse, I love eating venison. Mm. Until there was a ban on mountain hare, I quite liked eating hare as well. So. Yeah. I think, you know, that's what I want. If you envisage the whole world covered with trees on the uplands and that's your vision, then that's what you want. Yeah. You know, and I think actually if we can sit down and talk on both sides of that, we might find out we're not so far apart as we, as we were. I mean, yeah. they talk about the Great Caledonian Forest, don't they? And it would be fantastic to see more of that coming back. You know, old Scots pine trees, mixed woodland, you know. But when we have this idea of a forest, in our head, we always think of a wood. Yeah. Well, actually, really, forests were patches of scrub, a few mature trees, then a bit of a meadow, and the ungulates and the animals in there stirring it up and impacting the environment would create these different pockets, and then they would develop and progress. It wasn't just a whole load of mature trees that yeah. we think of when we say forest today. Because that's what we know from the land of forestry. Yeah. yeah. But when I hear people describe a grouse moor as a wildlife desert, I am horrified mm. because it's just a lie. If you can't find wildlife on a grouse moor, you're not looking. Yeah. You've got, in fact, you're willfully closing your eyes. Yeah. Tremendous. I think it's time that you eat some food. Great. Uh, and, see, you, and, and you. Yeah, like, and, can and, I put and, the camera and, down? And, and oh, see, we have see to if do. Tim's cooking is yeah. Okay. Oh, I'll get your knife. I'll get your knife and fork. I think she likes. Do you think has anybody had any questions over whether or not I was vegan? <laughs> Gone out the window now, haven't they? No, it's absolutely delicious. But it, it is really, really, really. I mean, it's just really delicious food. There is no doubt from Sarah's reaction that the Uplands produce some world-class food. 
Alex Jenkins is the head gamekeeper of a northern estate, where the land is primarily managed for grouse shooting. The vast bulk of the estate is open, open heaven moorland. Um, we go up to about two and a half thousand feet at the top. Um, and down, down in the bottom features of the estate where we are just now, um, we've got farmland. Um, it's no, no arable farmland in our case, it's all grassland. Um, we've got quite a large farming enterprise on the estate as well. We've got a bit of commercial forestry, um, amenity forestry as well. The commercial forestry is something we've been phasing out in recent years, um, going to some more, more native trees. But how does what you do fit into the broader landscape management? up here because this kind of landscape that we're sitting in right now is the subject of a lot of conversations like around the world where it's um, quite rare habitat it's um, ecosystems that have had that we've done all manner of things to like in decades gone by um, and we can we can we can get in like draining of the moors is what, what I'm thinking of which was all agricultural stuff which we can talk about um, it's mostly peatlands which has become a key conversation in the climate change debate. So what is the, the sort of broader conservation and management play that you're involved in here beyond just what very simplistically from the outside would be like, well, they're doing whatever they can do just so they can kill some grouse at the end of the day? Yeah, um, simple economics, I think, really. Um, the hills in Scotland... Uh, you, you alluded to what we've done in decades, but I mean, even hundreds of years, this folk have made their living out of these hills for f thousands of years, whether that be highland cattle or sheep after the clearances or deer stocking or it's economic, simple economics. And I suppose we, the, all the conservation work that we do here, there's very little of it funded by the government, very little, if, if at all. Uh, it's all comes from private funding and, the driven grouse shooting for a lot of estates facilitates that. You know, it's the so one. It's the economic system. It's to the pay economic. For the broader it's the economic driver. The shooting. I mean, to shoot grouse and driven grouse in Scotland or or the UK in general is a very expensive thing to do. Uh, it's expensive for a reason. It's a very difficult game bird to produce. Um, but that economic benefit from taking in paying guns for a lot of estates um, actually. The money from that goes into paying the likes of myself, um, goes into running the estate. They're not cheap things to run by any means. Um, we've got a large farming enterprise here, um, which in very recent years has been doing okay, but historically hill farming in Scotland's not done no. very well. Without uh, subsidies, I don't think Without it subsidies, really it's it. really going to struggle. Yeah. Um, but there's a huge public benefit from having the sheep on the hill. You know, the, What's that? The, these guys, the sheep are managing the the hill in such a way you wouldn't see these sort of broad purple clad hills were it not for two things really. Muirburn and grazing livestock. After speaking with Alex, Sarah and I travelled a little further north to meet up with ecologist Cathy Main, who is a landowner in the uplands. But not the kind of landowner you may be thinking of. She is a crofter, not a highland laird. Hello. Hey Cathy, how are you going? Good. Hello, I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, yes. There's good hard standing there if you just want to... 
They're noisy, but they'll, oh, they'll pull. Yeah, they'll I'll, get I'll, used to it, don't worry. I'll pull off, I'll pull off. So is this your croft, is it? This is my croft. Oh, amazing. What a great location. Oh, no, it's yeah, sorry. It's a bit cloudy. Sarah, Kathy, Kathy, Hi, Sarah. Sarah. Oh, nice sorry, to meet you. Come on, dogs. So how big is this area of land that you've got again? So it's about 32 hectares or 90 acres. That's a so it's quite fairly big. large it's, 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 it's big for a croft. It's really big for a croft. It's quite a bi big area, yeah, for you to have to manage. <laughs> yeah, mm. <laughs> it's going to be a challenge. And I suppose in some ways that gives me the opportunity to manage it lightly yeah. and to do lots of environmental things, which, you know, tend to mean leaving it alone, not doing too much. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So, I mean, your background's in ecology, geology. Yes. How do you feel about um, humans managing the whole of the uplands? Uh, Mixed. <laughs> I, I, um, the reality is that all of our landscapes in this part of the world have been heavily managed for so long that doing nothing to my mind is, is, is not responsible because it's a, such an incomplete ecosystem. Um, and humans are an integral part of every ecosystem. You know, it, I, I think it is dangerous and deluding to take ourselves out of that concept because we are utterly dependent on ecosystems for our survival. Yeah. Um, having said that, you know, the place would be so much the better. The whole planet would be so much the better if we didn't exist. Yeah. So if we were taking <laughs> out the equation completely, it wouldn't Ab matter. Absolutely. But for our survival. But if we wish to survive, <laughs> yeah, then we need to make some quite difficult decisions. And doing nothing and allowing this to kind of return in a rather um, peculiar way, because it will be very incomplete to, to uh, a, a natural state. Natural state, of course, not being the same thing because natural states fluctuate all the time. Yeah. Um, has some very significant impacts, not least culturally, for the people who do belong here, of which I'm not one. I wasn't going to say anything about the accent. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 you know, I come from London. Yes. I was brought up in suburban London, um, but I've been up here since 1988, which is quite a long time now. Yeah. And it, it feels like home to me. But culturally, taking the people out of this landscape would be a kind of ethnic cleansing, which I would find unacceptable it would be the second clearances and I'm not the first person to use that term mm. and I think that would be a, a really big mistake because in terms of in terms of sustainable lifestyles the people here have probably amongst the most sustainable lifestyles of the people any anybody in the UK 
And the people who are telling us what we should be doing have some of the most unsustainable lifestyles. That's quite galling. Mm. You know, m most people here don't have fancy holidays abroad, don't take flights, don't consume and mm. spend in the same way that people in urban settings do. Yep. They eat off the land, they live off the land. It's a very sustainable way of life. And culturally, it's really important. There's language, there's, there's, there's history, there's, it's just, it's just critical. And if you try and do it, people will revolt. Mm. And then, you know, there's already mutterings of discontent about, about green lairds and rewilding and all of those sorts of big charities, organizations coming in and buying up swaths of land and, and making effectively it. taking the people away from it. Yeah taking away their jobs, taking away the things that allow them to continue to be here. We have heard today from some of the people who live and work in the uplands. Later on in this series, we will meet others who would like to see the end of grouse moors, some who want to see an increase in upland tree planting, and others who would rather nature just find its own way. Join us next week as we explore one of the most controversial topics, Muirburn. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and visit the webpage www.britishuplands.com to keep up to date and get in touch with any questions. You can also email info at britishuplands.com. The British Upland series is presented by Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, co-produced and edited by David Shanks as part of the Into the Wilderness podcast, an MH Studios production.